All right, our main speaker this morning, Andrew Torres. After graduating from Harvard Law with honors in 1997, Andrew Torres worked for big law firms in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore uh, for nearly 20 years. He founded his firm in 2015 to bring small businesses the same high level of intellectual firepower that his clients have come to expect from the best law firms of the in the nation. And of course, I think many of us know him as the co-host of the Opening Arguments podcast, a legal podcast that helps listeners make sense of the news. Houston Oasis, let's welcome, all the way from the East Coast, Mr. Andrew Torres. Oh, th thank you so much. Um, before I start the talk, I, I want to thank uh, Robert Kuhn for uh, sharing his music with us. Um, I want to I want to thank Alexis Podeman for her fantastic speech on on Texas independence. Um, I, I want to uh, especially thank uh, Lindsay Cheatham, all of Houston Oasis, for bringing me out here, and Teresa Gomez and the OA Houston group for uh, showing me a little too good of a time last night. So, um, so here we are, right? Skepticism in the age of fake. News. I got to confess something to you. I, I have lured you here under false pretenses. This is the actual title of this speech. So, before I can tell you how we're all gonna die, uh, you knew you were getting a speech from a lawyer, so here are the mandatory disclaimers. The Houston Free Thought Oasis is a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization, and nothing in this speech is or is intended to advocate on behalf of or in opposition to any political campaign or any candidate for public office. And, of course, nothing in this speech constitutes legal advice or creates an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from this speech. Oh, um, and the puppy is up there for two reasons. Um, first, a lot of you listen to my show, and that is indeed Lily, the opening arguments puppy. And second, uh, I'm hopefully about to scare the hell out of you, so I've included some adorable puppy pictures. It is 100 seconds to midnight. Let me explain what that means. This is the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Actually, first, rabbit trail. Um, like anything with atomic in the name, like Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, makes me think of Disney's Tomorrowland, you know, sponsored by the Monsanto Chemical Company. Uh, but, but look, like, you know, Tomorrowland, right? The, the Jetsons, personal rocket packs, those spaceships with the 1950s tail fins. Like, the idea that we could just kind of technology our way out of any problem. Um, and... And let me level with you, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a little old, and I'm a kid of the 1980s, and, and that's the world that I grew up in, that, that optimism. And, and in many ways, I, I still have that, and I want to share that with you. Um, but I'm also a realist, and that's where the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists comes in. It's a bi-monthly research publication, nonprofit organization, dedicated to informing us of existential risks to humanity, and those two existential risks right now are climate change and nuclear war. And actually, those two are intertwined, because the major reason why nuclear war is different than other kinds of war is because it has the power radically to alter our climate. And like climate change, there has been a concerted effort to discredit the science behind nuclear winter. Um, I would encourage you to Google Robach nuclear winter. Head to the URL I've got up there. That is Alan Robach, the leading researcher on nuclear winter, and his stuff is terrifying. So, this is the doomsday clock. After the uh, 
bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, those scientists on the Manhattan Project got together to form a nonprofit to warn us of the dangers that they had just unleashed onto the world. And this was the metaphor that they came up with. A clock ticking down to midnight, with midnight representing the end of civilization as we know it. In 1947, they set those hands at seven minutes to midnight. Um, and during tense times, it's fluctuated since then, right? So 1953, the US and the Soviet Union both tested thermonuclear bombs, and, it, and the, the, the clock shrunk. Um, but it's also moved backwards when we have come together as a, a human species and reduced nuclear stockpiles, taken action on climate change. The safest we've ever been was 1991. That was the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it was 17 minutes to midnight. 17 minutes wouldn't even show up on this clock. Um, remember 1991, Al Gore had just invented the internet. Cell phones looked like the communicators from Star Trek, and you could admit to liking the music of the Scorpions unironically. Um, in 1991, it was 17 minutes to midnight. This is what's happened since 1991. That brief moment there to six minutes uh, was when we signed on to the UN Climate Change Conference in 2009 and agreed to hard caps on carbon emissions that we soon disregarded. Here's where it was prior to 2020. And then six weeks ago, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved it to 100 seconds. That's the closest we've ever been to disaster, closer than the Cuban Missile Crisis, closer than the height of the Cold War. And here's their reasons why. Some of these you probably knew. The breakdown of international agreements, the US, Russia, and China all oppose the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But then they said something that I didn't expect, something that caused me to rewrite this speech three weeks ago. Why are we losing trust in the kinds of international institutions that we need to protect us from climate change and nuclear war? Because of the growing trend in the world for political leaders to dismiss facts they don't like as fake news and to manufacture or endorse lies through deep fakes that are, and I've underlined it up there, essentially undetectable as false. So, last year, you might remember this. Certain people created the easiest deep fake in the world. This is a speech by Nancy Pelosi, and all they did was slow it down by 25% to make it look as though she was drunk or mentally incapacitated. And I want you to check out that bottom line. As of yesterday, Facebook, while they have announced a new policy on deepfakes, refuses to take down the video, even though it is 100% a lie. So here's what that means for you as skeptics. It increasingly means a world in which you can see headlines, screenshots, even full videos that are essentially undetectable as false. And that means you're going to have to do some detecting. 
you're going to need a skeptical toolkit to enable you to decipher news stories. And that, I'm not going to lie to you, that's hard. Um, but I am here to help. So, toolkit number one. Um, don't race to be first. I, I promise I'm not just making fun of Teresa on that one. Look, we all race to be first, right? I do it on my show. I'm super proud that we were the first to cover the Stormy Daniels story a month before the mainstream media latched onto it. But one of the things that I do on my show is I will not cover a story until we have the underlying legal documents. And that's because media, interest groups, um, the, the, the legal term here is they suck at understanding legal documents. Two stories to prove that. First, you might remember that one of the first things that President Trump promised to do and did upon taking office was issue an executive order banning entry into the United States from seven predominantly Muslim countries. That first executive order was written by, again, important legal term, idiots. And so, in addition to all of the terrible racist stuff that it did, uh, it did blatantly unconstitutional things like not allowing nationalized U.S. citizens traveling to those countries to return home, which even President Trump can't do. It was a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. And so the good folks at the ACLU went out and they got an injunction against that executive order. Here's how the ACLU lawyers described that. And, and look, victory, great. They got, that they got that injunction blocked and Americans were allowed to return home. Here's how the ACLU characterized that victory. This statement, court declares Muslim ban unconstitutional, not true. The next day, the ACLU issued this as a correction, which described what actually did happen which was a district court judge issued a temporary injunction blocking that first executive order because of the American citizen component that I described. And so the significance was, if you only read that first story, you thought the Muslim ban in its entirety was declared unconstitutional. And as you may know, that is not the case. It took two more executive orders, it took three more lawsuits, and the Supreme Court weighing in in a 5-4 decision, but the Supreme Court ultimately decided that the Muslim ban, as currently phrased, is constitutional. So you had false hope and maybe slightly less activism and optimism if you just read the ACLU headline first. And the ACLU is a totally reputable organization. And these were lawyers that wrote the headlines. Second story of the perils of being first. On March 24th, 2019, Attorney General Bill Barr received an advanced copy of the Mueller report. He purported to summarize that report before any of us could read it. I summarized the principal conclusions of the report. And that boiled down to no collusion. It exonerated the president. And because media sources wanted to be first, that's what they ran with. This headline from the Dallas Morning News in 900-point font was retweeted out by the president. And every major media outlet carried the story in the same way. The Washington Post and the New York Times were worse 
they inferred no conspiracy because they needed the news first. And notice what those headlines say. Mueller finds no conspiracy. As it turns out, that's also false. The Mueller, uh, William Barr's summary of the Mueller report quotes that report three times. You may notice that all three of these quotes are from the middle of sentences. And if you're thinking, gosh, did the beginning of these sentences completely contradict? Of course they did. So, quote number one. The investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. What did that omit? Yeah, that omitted the word although at the beginning. Although the Russians worked to secure a Trump presidency, and although the Trump campaign knew it, comma, the stuff that they quoted. And yes, those other two quotes were similarly butchered. Um, so, now, partial fairness to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others, they couldn't have known that these quotes were butchered because they didn't have the Mueller report, but let's not be too fair to them. They didn't have the Mueller report. They shouldn't have gone to press with the Mueller report says because they had no way of knowing what the Mueller report said. They could have said, Attorney General William Barr says, but they didn't say that. They said, no collusion, no conspiracy. And maybe that's why, two months after the actual Mueller report came out, an Ipsos poll taken in June of 2019 showed that 3% of Republicans, as represented by Justin Amash from Michigan, said it made them more likely to support impeachment, while 42% said it made them less likely to support impeachment. The remaining 54% said made no difference. So that adds up to 97% thought no collusion, no conspiracy, because Bill Barr poisoned the well and Americans don't read. So what can we do? We can demand to see the underlying documents. We can wait until reputable sources have analyzed them. We can know that even reputable sources can get it wrong. Second tool in your toolkit. This one I'm going to push you guys a little bit. Understand first and argue second. It means that when you are arguing or forming an opinion, you do not pick your argument and then go looking for the evidence to support it. And I'm going to give you a case example in why you don't do that. Um, those of you who listen to my show may remember a couple of years ago, I had a debate with a guy named Travis Wester. Ooh, really, really wanted Ann Coulter's lawsuit against Berkeley to be this like fabulous watershed moment for conservatives to do activism on college campuses. And I, the only problem was none of that stuff was real and Ann Coulter's lawsuit was nonsense. In 2017, he came onto my show to argue. Um, it didn't go well for him. Um, and, and to understand why, I've got to teach you a little bit about how cases work. Okay, so indulge me on this. Um, these are the case citations for Plessy versus Ferguson. And even though there's not a lot, a, a, an audience of lawyers, I think we all know Plessy versus Ferguson. It's one of the most infamous cases in American history. It's the one that said separate is, and equal are fine. It was overturned by Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. It hasn't been good law for six and a half, century, uh, six and a half decades. Wish six and a half centuries. Um, does, 
the, 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 the caption on the left is what you get when any of you log into Google Scholar and type in Plessy versus Ferguson. The caption on the right is what I get as a lawyer when I type it into Lexis. And who can spot the difference between these two captions? Right, mine has a giant red stop sign on it, right? And that stop sign is there to tell me, in case I suck as a lawyer, um, Andrew, if you cite this case, opposing counsel and the judge and all of her clerks will laugh at you because this is not good law. But yours doesn't have a stop sign on it. Now, presumably you know Plessy versus Ferguson isn't good law, but you probably don't know that Smith versus Jones is not good law. And this is what happened to poor Mr. Wester during our debate. Um, he kept citing a case from the Fifth Circuit that had a big red stop sign on it. And he didn't know that because his version didn't have one. And also, he didn't know that the Fifth Circuit covers Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and not California. And also, he was citing from the dissent. Look, like it, it, it went bad in a lot of ways, okay? Um, but what I realized was the way in which he'd gone about constructing his argument was to type in conservative speakers on college campuses and then find a case and cite that case as an authority, even if it was from the wrong court at the wrong time and had been overruled. Now, look. If this were science, you would immediately see the problem, right? You don't pick the results and then cherry pick the data to support your conclusion. You follow the data where it leads. And I want to tell you, the law is the same way. Just like you can have a crazy outlier experiment that is nothing but noise, you can find a crazy outlier case, especially if you don't know which ones have the stop signs. Um, I don't need to tell you, the Ann Coulter lawsuit was nonsense, right? This is how the local Fox affiliate described the inevitable settlement, which I predicted on the show. He predicted total victory for Ann Coulter. I said, it's going to go away in a nonsense settlement. And the, the settlement was the university agreeing to, quote, consider changes to its policy, uh, which was then described as non-substantive and indistinguishable from total victory at trial, right? So look. The lesson is not, don't argue. That would be a pretty dumb thing for a lawyer to get up and tell you. I love arguing, right? The lesson is, understand the facts first and pick your arguments second, not the other way around. Look, Travis's argument about underrepresentation of conservative voices on college campuses, that, I don't agree with it, but there's a non-crazy way to make that argument. It's not inherently laughable but it becomes that way when you're marshalling facts and cherry-picking through the cases with stop signs. On to our last tool in the toolkit, which is to be wary of efforts to play to your emotions and your preconceived notions. All right, who knows what these two things are? Yes, on the left is professional grifter and con artist, Dr. Jill Stein. On the right is a 22-pound turkey. Some of you know this story. But since it is an election year, I thought it was important to include it again. This will also be the segment where I am most likely to get angry questions during the cross-examination period, which I welcome. Um, so, these two turkeys are connected over Thanksgiving 2016. 
it was 8 p.m. the night before. I am in my backyard getting ready to smoke the turkey on the right. My, you know, I'm covered in turkey goop, and my phone starts going crazy in my pocket. So I go inside, I wash off, and I try and figure out what's going on. And here's what's going on. Jill Stein was announcing that she was raising money to fund recounts in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. If you add up those three states, that would give us just enough electoral votes to make Donald Trump not the president. And I got 500, 507 actually, texts, emails, other messages, and they all, actually, um, it would be easier to tell you the question that they didn't ask me, right? The question they didn't ask me was, Andrew, if these recounts are going to benefit Hillary Clinton, then why are they being brought by the crazy cat lady that wished Harambe a happy birthday and not by Hillary Clinton? Um, that would have been a really, really good question. Put a pin in that. It's a doctrine called standing. We're going to pull it out in a second. But no, I got 500 variations of this question. And let me tell you what this question meant. This did not mean, Andrew, in your considered legal opinion is that, no, this meant, Andrew, please tell me this is real. Please tell me there's something I can do to make Donald Trump not the president. So, was it real? Of course it wasn't real, right? And this was patently obvious to anybody who stopped to think about it for a second. This is the lawyer's answer for why it's not real. MGL 168.862, Michigan's electoral law, which says a candidate for office who believes that he or she is aggrieved on account of fraud or mistake can petition for a recount. What does it mean to be aggrieved on account of fraud or mistake? It means that you allege that a recount will make a difference for you personally. Jill Stein was at 1% before the recount in fourth place. She was going to be at 1% after the recount in fourth place. She wasn't even arguing that it would help her. She was arguing that it would help her ostensible opponent. And that's where we can pull that pin back out. That's standing. You didn't have to know MGL 168.862 to know that courts don't issue advisory opinions. Courts don't let you come in and say, hey, uh, my friend Bob was hurt, can you fix it? They say, yeah, well, great, let Bob come in. The court has to do something to address your grievances. That's standing, this lawsuit didn't have it. And that is what I took to uh, I record an emergency episode of my show and Facebook and the various interwebs to tell people, and it made an awful lot of people who were otherwise fans of my show, very, very unhappy. Um, I got added to a group uh, on Facebook called Lawyers on the Left, and I explained the standing argument that I just made to you. And an admin of the group said, uh, well, you may be right, but it's important that we stop Donald Trump, and I view this like a lottery ticket, and so I'm going to send Jill Stein money, and maybe it will pay off. And I said... <laughs> See, I, I would advise you not to play the lottery either. And that ended my 52-minute tenure as a member of Lawyers on the Left on Facebook. You know how this story ends, right? 
The courts in Michigan and Pennsylvania ruled that Jill Stein lacked standing. In Wisconsin, which had a separate law that didn't require standing, Jill Stein's recount resulted in Donald Trump getting an additional 131 popular votes. Um, I do not go through this to brag about how smart I am as a lawyer, although I do enjoy doing that. Um, I did not have to be a smart lawyer to get this right. Literally the dumbest lawyer on the planet could have gotten this right. The only people who got it wrong were people, like some of us here in this room, who really, really wanted it to be right, and they wanted there to be something that they could do to make Trump not president. And here, by the way, uh, is where you can ask your angry questions, because as it turns out, there is something Jill Stein voters could have done to have not made Donald Trump president, and that is, they could have voted for Hillary Clinton. Now, let me be clear on two things. First, as I said at the outset, I am cognizant that this is a speech before a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I am not telling you that you should have voted against Donald Trump in 2016. I am not telling you you should vote against Donald Trump in 2020. What I am telling you is that if you voted Green Party in 2016, probably the last thing you wanted was Donald Trump to be president. And then the second caveat, I'm not saying, I, when I talk to Stein voters, I get two responses. The angry responses are like a kind of reverse time travel, like, well, it's not my fault. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it was Jill Stein's fault that Hillary Clinton was not elected. There's a lot of blame to go around in that election, okay? I am saying, as a mathematical fact, that if Stein voters in those three states had voted for Hillary Clinton, she would be the president. And that's the second response I got from a lot of Jill Stein voters who said, Andrew, Nate Silver told me there was a 99.9% .9 chance that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected, and I wanted to use my voice to send a message, and so I voted for... And, and we can talk about that in the Q&A. But I like to an an analogize this to a fantastic episode of, if you're an OA fan, you knew you were going to get a Simpsons reference, right? Um, this is Homer watching the pig de resistance slip from his grasp, right? It's just a little dirty. It's still good. It's still good. It's just a little slimy. It's still good. It's still good. It's just a little airborne. It's still good. It's still good. And then Bart says, it's gone. And Homer says, yeah, I, I know. I mean, even Homer came to acceptance eventually. Um, I am going to skip over the evidence of how Jill Stein raised $7 million in two weeks and pocketed the money. I am going to skip over the equally fraudulent front-paged on Daily Coast Revote 2016. We can talk about that in Q&A if you want. I'm going to go back to Homer. That moment where we try and convince ourselves that it's just a little airborne, that's when we stop being skeptics that's when we want something to be true more than we care about whether it's false. So those are your three tools. Be patient. Look for the source documents. Understand first. Argue second. And watch out for efforts to appeal to your emotions, especially if they come from slick lawyers who put puppy pictures on the screen. I want to leave you with this quote from Houston native one of the pioneers of video gaming, Chris Crawford. 
1986, he wrote a game called Balance of Power. Some of you may remember it. And uh, it was the first international relations simulator. And the way you lost was by triggering nuclear war. And back then, because the graphics were 8-bit sprites and, you know, generally looked terrible, it was customary for games to have these lavish ending sequences with the finest 320 by 192 graphics that you could have at the time. And, uh, and Chris Crawford didn't put in a big, beautiful nuclear mushroom cloud at the end. He put in this box. We do not reward failure. It is 100 seconds to midnight. It's time to act. Thank you very much. So we can do some Q&A? All right, um, so we've got some time for some Q&A. So if you uh, have a question, raise your hand, and Abhishek and I are going to take turns getting it to people. First uh, comment, I was Chris Crawford's publisher at that oh. time. <laughs> Fantastic. I loved Balance of Power, Eastern Front, 1941. Let's geek out after the. <laughs> okay. So you had your Apex catalog. I'm sorry? Did you have an Apex catalog? Do I have an Apex catalog? Yeah. That, was, just, that was the catalog, which you primarily marketed it through. Oh, no, no. The Atari Program Exchange. Oh, yeah, program. APX, sure. Yeah, I, I, had a, I had Atari 800. So. Okay. okay. <laughs> the question is, you mentioned that you have a, a show, a program, a website, something like that. Where do we find it? Yep. Oh, I promise this was not a plant, but uh, thank you, sir. No, um, that little graphic on the right, it is Opening Arguments, the podcast. So if you start typing Opening Arguments into Twitter, uh, into Twitter, into Google, it will get you there, or it is OpenArgs, O-P-E-N-A-R-G-S dot com. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to share my favorite anecdote about naming the show with you, uh, which is inevitably at these talks, lawyers will come up to me and say, y you do know that uh, you can't give arguments in your opening statement, right? And then I will say to them, Yes, that's why when you Google opening statements, you get 80,000 videos on YouTube that are the beginning of a trial. And when you Google opening arguments, you get my show. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks for the question. Good morning. Good thank morning. You. That was so enlightening. Oh, thank you so, so much. So I'm sitting here thinking, what do you need to help you get people like us to spread the word, to be a little bit more thoughtful, to teach others, how can we volunteer or get paid? <laughs> we have many young people here who want to get paid to do this kind of work. So how, what do you need? So that is a fantastic question. Um, so there are a couple of things that, that I want to speak to on that, right? The first is, there is a reason why I'm out here from Baltimore. I travel to various free thought skeptic organizations and waive my speaker's fee and do my best to get out and share the message. Um, I, I, I really think, like when, when people ask me on the show, like what are the challenges to democracy going forward? Um, I, I think the biggest challenge right now is that we do not have a common language of acceptable facts. And, and, and let's explain, let me explain that in concrete terms. I picked the nuclear war in 100 seconds because that's terrifying. Um, but, but here's a more personal example. I live in Baltimore. 
Uh, I travel, I have an office in DC. I travel there all the time. A gentleman showed up at the front door of a pizza joint called Comet Ping Pong with an AK-47 strapped to his back demanding to be led into the basement where Hillary Clinton had a secret sex ring of raping and murdering toddlers. There are a lot of problems with that statement, but probably the biggest one is Comet Ping Pong does not have a basement. Fortunately, this person was talked down and did not open fire. Um, but the reason that I, I, I began with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is imagine a deep fake that shows a secret entrance to the basement below Comet Ping Pong. How do you disprove that to somebody who's motivated, who says, no, I saw you push the blocks in the right order and a passageway opens up? That's terrifying. Um, there's a piece of research I had to cut from this presentation um, where, and, and I, I realize I'm, I'm doing a little, a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail. This is one of my signature moves. Um, researchers tested the question of whether there is such a thing called a nuclear taboo. Steven Pinker believes in it. He, he wrote 12 pages on the better angels of our nature about how, look, we all know that nuclear weapons are so terrifying we would never do them again. And what he did was, uh, this, this group uh, hired YouGov and they created a scenario. And the scenario was designed to mimic Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it said, um, imagine that the United States is engaged in a protracted war with Iran and the Joint Chiefs of Staff are considering an option to shock Iran into unconditional surrender. It involves dropping a thermonuclear weapon on Mashhad, which is the second largest city in Iran. Would you support such an action knowing that it would kill two million civilians? Um, how many, what percentage of people do you think agreed with dropping a nuclear bomb on innocent civilians in Mashhad, 60%. And larger majorities said, even if I didn't support it at the time, I would still support the president's right to do that. Um, and he called it a rally round the bomb effect, equivalent to the rally round the flag effect. That's 2019 research. He did that last year. Um, so. It is crucial. And so, so now just imagine, right? You, you have a deep fake of Iran assassinating U.S. soldiers or, I don't know, something else. Could you gin up American support for massacring civilians? The answer appears to be yes. And that is why I rewrote this talk three weeks ago because that scared the hell out of me. I'm not trying to scare the hell out of you. What I am saying is that I think it is crucial to change our little behaviors in, in small ways. So one of the things that is, a, is an actual action item is before you share something out on social media, if it's a headline you agree with, click through and read the story. I, I, I'm sometimes guilty of that, okay? We all are. But be just a little bit more skeptical. Look for a little bit more of what's out there as we're engaging and we're trying to talk to folks. And I try and, and, and talk to people and say, let's, particularly when it's somebody on the far right with whom I have very little in common politically, I say, look, if we can agree on the common set of facts, 
then let's talk about principles. But I want to get you to facts first. So that's the, that's the best I've got. Hope that helps. All right, we have a question here. Yeah, uh, you were talking about Jill Stein, and I was just curious, it does really seem like fraud, what she did. Did anyone bring a lawsuit against her? Is that, is that possible to do? So that's a great question. Um, it absolutely, I, I, I'm, I'm happy here. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of myself personally, and also I've said this on the show, which is put out by Opening Arguments Media LLC, a Maryland limited liability company. Jill Stein is welcome to sue me when I call her a fraud, a grifter, and a con artist. She will not. She is. Um, the answer to your question is that in the law, Proving fraud is really, really hard. Um, and part of that is you have to identify the specific sentences that are materially false. And she did this. Let's see if I can go back. I, I skipped over some of it. I'm not sure if you can see it. Yeah, this was the disclaimer from her website at the time that people sent in the donations. And as you can see, it says, in the unlikely event that we can't spend all the money on recounts, um, we will use that to support the Green Party's historic voter reform efforts, um, which meant she was 100% entitled to use it as a fundraiser. And as I pointed out, her presidential campaign raised $3.5 million in two years. The recount fundraiser raised $7 million in two weeks. So. That's why there have been no fraud lawsuits. Read the fine print. I, sorry, I have a question. C could you give us perhaps a quick summary of reliable sources? I mean, I have a terrible time deciding even now what is reasonable and what's reliable. And then I get in arguments on, on Facebook all the time with, <laughs> with all these right-wing people. And of course, they claim just as I claim their stuff's crazy, they claim my stuff's crazy. So it, does anybody agree on anything as being reliable? <laughs> yeah, um, that's tough, and that's why I took the, uh, the first pot shot at the ACLU. I, I, I need to tell you, I am a literal card-carrying member of the ACLU. I have been a contributor since I was 14 years old. I love and believe strongly in what they do, and if they got it wrong, anybody can get it wrong. So here's what I recommend. The first newspaper I typically go to when I'm vetting stories for opening arguments is the Chicago Tribune. And the reason I do that is not because the Tribune is the best paper in the world, but because they have the best track record of embedding or linking to the actual documents that verify the facts that back up their stories. Their online stories have the most hyperlinks. And so when I get in a back and forth and someone is like, oh, well, that's just a, you know, CNN and who knows. And I, I have this thing from a blogger at Red State named, you know, Trump lover 69. And like, I, I, I don't want to get into any of that. What I want to say is, let's talk about the underlying facts. What happened? And then we can apply sort of our filter on top. So um, it's the, the answer to your question is it, it's hard. A lot of sources do get it wrong. I wait for like the consensus to come out. Um, there, there's also some arguing from the alternative, right? The, the like think about, and, and, and I've got an example, a right-wing example that comes to mind, but look, there, let us not overly, if you agree with me politically, understood, right? Um, 
let's not overly pat ourselves on the back on the left, right? We share fake news and stupid stories, and and I, I can't. I wish I could think of one because I like taking shots at our own side. Um, there was a story that went around um, that a certain journalist on CNN of Muslim descent had like shouted Allahu Akbar like in the middle of a CNN broadcast, right? And that was shared out by Red State and the like conservative blogosphere and, and got circulated back to me. And, and I just asked the person, I said, look, look, if this happened on national television, can you, can you show me a clip? And again, could be a deep fake. Um, and why wasn't this, don't you think somebody other than TrumpLover69 at gmail.com would have proof that this happened? And, and so that's kind of how I start to engage with that. If something seems preposterous and it's not covered anywhere, that's probably a good sign that it's preposterous. I wish I had, wish I had better sources. That's part of the lesson of the talk, so. Yeah, so, so here's the thing, right? Wire services are very good at telling you what happened, right? Um, the problem with wire services like Reuters or AP is that they are working off of a standard of journalistic ethics that worked super great in the 1970s and is exploitable today by the kinds of, of sources that I'm talking about, right? So one of the things that Reuters and AP, right, like all of those are, are people who studied journalism uh, and, and came out of school and sort of believe in the like, oh, well, whenever you cover a story, you get both sides, right? And getting both sides is how you give airtime to people who say that climate change is a hoax invented by the Chinese. So it, it, it is and it isn't. All right, we have time for one more quick question. <laughs> and I'll stick around, so if you've got more. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that was a fantastic talk. I oh, really appreciate you. you coming out here. Um, I have a question, and I heard from over here talking about Facebook arguments. And kind of going to step, and I guess, I guess it goes maybe a step beyond the talk here today, because that's, it's, it's great for us to have that information and, and to remember and constantly remind ourselves to be skeptical about things. Then there's a second component of engagement with other people about it. And from my own personal experience, and, and I'm guilty of a lot of this myself, uh, trying to, to, to talk with people about these things, and you can prove conclusively that this article is fake news and convince the person that it is not real. They fall right back on something else going forward. And with the election coming up, and I'm seeing a whole lot of this with Bernie Biden going on right now, same sort of thing. Uh, there on the left there might have been a hidden subtext in my retelling the Jill Stein story. <laughs> anyway, please continue. Sorry. But uh, do you have any good advice on going forward? Because you're very good at persuading yourself. Do you have any good just general <laughs> advice on persuading going forward without getting people, trying to keep people from getting entrenched back in those beliefs? I, I love that question. Um, I don't know that I have good advice, but I have advice. And so that'll, that'll have to do. Um, I like to front that because because I have seen 100% that behavior. It is the behavior that you get from missionaries who come to your front door. I'm blacklisted by the Mormon Church, by the way, because um, the Mormons come to my door and they're nice young men, and I I bring them in and you know give them a glass of lemonade and we sit down and 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 chat. And now they don't they don't come to my door anymore. Um, 
but because I began with the same thing, right? And, and, and so, and I'm going to make the analogy from politics because I, I think these things are more analogous now than they were in the past. Um, when the Mormons come to my door, I, I, I bring them in, I sit them down, I give them the lemonade, I say, this is your lucky day because... I'm an atheist, so I don't have any, like, crazy, like, you're not going to hear the, like, evangelical arguments again. Like, I'm open, you're going to persuade me, but I want you to think of two things, and I want you to remember these two things, right? Number one, I want to know, I will tell you what it would take for me to switch my belief and accept yours, and I need you to tell me what would change your belief, right, to reject your view and accept mine. And number two, when we work through something, I, I want you to ask yourself what it means that a trusted source told you something that I could demonstrate to be false. And again, it, I can't say that that has a great history of success, but that, that prevents the kind of gallop of arguments of like, okay, well, all right, fine, there's no secret cabal beneath Comet Ping Pong, but, you know, the deep state is still def definitely infiltrated into the federal government, and, and, and you're right, like, you can, you can swat away things all the time, you got to stop and be like, no, wait, I told you at the outset, and, and, and you, just believed some, you just believed that there was a child sex ring in the basement of a place that doesn't have a basement, like, like let's talk about why you believed that coming into it. It's, it's the best advice I got. I will tell you, I, I, I love the, the thing that got me banned with the Mormons was because uh, they travel in pairs, right? And, um, and so I asked the one, like, what would, what would convince you that I could shoot lasers from my eyes, right? And he, he said, well, I suppose if, you know, you could, you know, light that square on fire over there. And before I could say anything, his compatriot, fellow elder, uh, elbows him and is like, no, 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 because he could have rigged that up in advance to detonate. <laughs> and I was like, all right, my work here is done. So <laughs> anyway, so thanks for the question. That's, that's the best I've, I've got. Thank thanks, you very thanks much. Thanks to all of you. I really appreciate it. <laughs>